Dear God, thank you for that story, God, the redemption story that you've given us because of your sacrifice. And Lord, I just pray as we come to this moment in time where we hear a word about being born again, Lord, that you would just prick our hearts and God calls us to move. God, be with Steve right now and we thank you for him. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, team, for helping us to worship the Lord. Let's give them a hand and give the Lord praise today uh, for leading us so well uh, in worship. Well, good morning, First Baptist Rustin. It's good to see you today. It's good to be here. I'm thankful for the invitation, the opportunity to uh, be with you on this very uh, special occasion of uh, just seeking the Lord for harvest and seeking the Lord for revival. Pastor, thank you for the great invitation to be with you uh, today. I was introduced as the executive director for Louisiana Baptist. A lot of times that, that almost immediately gets a question. So what exactly does the Louisiana Baptist Convention ex- executive director do? Uh, you are a strong supporter of our, of, of our work, so don't let me scare you, but some days I'm still trying to figure that out, all right? Uh, I began this journey in this role in May of 2019, and so just calculate in your head all that has happened to us since May of 2019, uh, almost immediately COVID, and then 27 hurricanes or whatever it's been for us uh, in, in, in Louisiana. But it's a, it's a great joy to serve Louisiana Baptist uh, and to help us to do things together. I, I, I like to say this, that I think being a Louisiana Baptist, being a Southern Baptist is the best of both worlds, really. It's the, the best world to be a church, to be independent, to, to lead and to do and to serve and to minister and, and believe however you Believe the Lord is leading you. That's a wonderful thing, a very New Testament way. But the flip side of the coin, and what makes, I think, being Louisiana Baptist the best of both worlds, is we get to do stuff together. And we get to do things like YEC. We've got some students probably been to YEC, get to do BCM ministry to, uh, together. Let me tell you just about one thing real, real quickly, and, and it's kind of the current thing, that beginning in just a couple of weeks or so, we're going to be send, sending over the course of six months, six teams of six to Poland to uh, bring relief to those who are evacuating from Ukraine. And, uh, you know, that's something that most churches could not do by themselves. But together as Louisiana Baptists, together as Southern Baptists, we're able to be just a small part of bringing hope and to bring the gospel uh, to those who are evacuating uh, war. So think about that, pray about that when you give to this church and know that this church supports the work of Louisiana Baptist and Southern Baptist. You're giving toward that kind of thing and th- thanks be to God uh, for it. Well, I want to turn our attention today to God's word and I want to draw your attention to a passage that is very familiar to most everybody here, the Gospel of John chapter 3. Arguably, there's a verse in the Gospel of John chapter 3 that is arguably the most familiar, most well-known, famous verse of Scripture in all of the Bible, right? John 3.16. If I asked us to quote it, unlike what your pastor is going to ask you to quote in Matthew chapter 22, um, John 3.16 is very quotable by most everybody here, right? But it's uh, in the, uh, a larger picture of another pretty familiar story, a scene, but not as familiar as John 3.16. But let's look at that whole scene today of conversation that Jesus has with a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. 
And as you turn to that passage in John chapter 3, I, I, I want to just explore with you for these moments together that our, our lives are sprinkled with what I would call defining moments. Defining moments. Uh, I give you one example, one notable example, and that is our birth, right? I mean, to border on the absurd, if we're not born, we're not going to have other defining moments of life. Is everybody with me so far? We don't get born. If we're not born, then that, that sort of stops other defining moments from happening uh, in, in, in our lives. But, but I'm convinced that there, uh, there are other defining moments that because that moment is a defining moment, it defines the rest of our lives. Coaches talk about this in the athletic world that uh, a game is decided by a handful of plays. You take football, for example, maybe a hundred plays in a football game, but coaches often talk about how those close games are, def- are decided by just five or six plays over the course of, the, of that whole game. Our lives very much are the same. My ten dozen, maybe, defining moments. And just like our physical birth defines our life, it also be true that our spiritual birth defines the rest of our lives. And that's the key of, of this conversation that happens between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's the place where Jesus introduces this phrase to be born again. Let's read about it in John chapter 3 thinking about this defining moment. The Bible says there was a man, verse 1, from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. As a ruler of the Jews, this man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Here it is, verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. For God so loved the world, we recognize. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In the first couple of verses of this chapter, we learn about four things about this man named Nicodemus. We learn, first of all, that he was a Pharisee. That means something if you study the different religions, the different sects of of, uh, 
uh, Judaism, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and lots of other different sects among uh, the Jewish people and the Pharisees we read about in the Old Testament and New Testament and some of their prescribed law and, and how they, you know, they made more of the law than they did with a relationship with God and, and oftentimes cases. And so he's a Pharisee, but not only is he a Pharisee, a very religious man, but the Bible is telling us that he is a ruler of the Pharisees. That means he is a leader. So he is not only a religious person, he is a religious leader. The Bible also tells us that he came to Jesus at night. That probably is telling us that Nicodemus had some curiosity about Jesus. He had heard and learned enough about Jesus that he was curious about Jesus, curious about exploring more about Jesus, maybe even to the point of exploring a relationship to Jesus, with Jesus, but he didn't want anybody else to know about that. And we also learn, fourthly, that uh, this man named Nicodemus has had some conversation with other Pharisees about Jesus to the point that he has some right information, some right knowledge about Jesus. So let's just summarize that for a moment. He's a religious man. He's a leader among his religious people. He's curious about Jesus, and he even has some right information, knowledge about Jesus. That becomes our launching pad this morning to talk about this defining moment and to understand that it's true for a person to be a religious person but have no relationship to Jesus. It is true that a person can even be seen and recognized by others as even a religious leader, but not truly have a relationship to Jesus. It is certainly true that a person can be curious about Jesus, but never crossed over that line and become a believer in Jesus. And it's also even true that a person can even have some right knowledge about Jesus, but has never entered into a relationship to this one who gives us eternal life. So it's why it makes this word or this phrase, born again, so very important to us. The use of the phrase born again shows us why salvation is the defining moment of our lives. Now listen, I get it that as Christians, sometimes we have our own language. I've, I've, I've heard it referred to as Christianese. And, and, and we use words and phrases that uh, we know what is meant by those words and phrases, but the world doesn't know what is meant by those words and phrases. And we have lots of them. We have words like being saved, and we have words like repentance, and even some deep theological words like justification and sanctification. And, and maybe some would throw into this box of words or phrases born again and, and and there's been a movement sometimes that we discard all of those words because nobody knows what we're talking about but i would like to advance a different approach let's explain what those words mean because at the heart of what those words mean it's deep truth and deep analogy powerful analogy words and phrases that Jesus used. And, and I just am convinced that if it's words that Jesus used, that perhaps it ought to be words that we use to help us to define and describe and explain what it means to be in relationship to him. And, and that's what is here, John 3. 
this phrase being born again. See, I think the reason that Jesus used this phrase with Nicodemus is so that Nicodemus, but not just Nicodemus, but by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through his holy words, so that you and I would be able to understand something about what it means to enter into relationship with him. Let's talk about that today. First of all, the phrase, born again, speaks to the magnitude of being a Christian. The word, the phrase, being born again, speaks to the magnitude. That is, speaks to the importance of being a Christian. Back to our idea of defining moment. We've got to have this defining moment. We've got to have the magnitude of this experience of being born again if we are going to have other defining moments of life. Jesus used this phrase. You know, notice in the text that Nicodemus doesn't bring up the phrase born again. Jesus brings up. Nicodemus asks him a question. Hey, I've heard some things about you, Jesus. It doesn't look like to me that anybody could do these kinds of things without God being with them, God being in them. And I'm not sure I understand that because you're just a, you're just a man. You're just Joseph's boy. You're just a carpenter. You're from Nazareth. And it's as though Jesus just sort of discards that conversation and says, unless you're born again. It's the magnitude of the moment. I've heard this fable before. It's a fable, so get it. It's a fable, but, but there's a man that has a couple of boys, and these, these sons are in this argument, intense argument, about whether or not a leader is born or made. And one boy believes one thing and the other boy believes something else. And they're in such heated argument, they decide to bring the argument to their dad, the king. And then so uh, the, the king turns the question back on them and says, well, why don't each of you go find an example, bring it back in a week, and we'll decide together if a leader can be born or made. The son, the brother who believes that a leader can be made, goes out and searches, believes that he finds the perfect example to support his argument. Now remember, it's a fable, but according to the fable, he, he finds a cat in a cafe serving tables. Cat has a tuxedo on, has a little bow tie on, got an apron on, got a napkin across his arm, and he's taking orders, going back to the kitchen, serving all the tables, pouring the water, all this kind of thing. And so the son who believes that a leader can be made says if a cat can be taught to wait on tables in, in, in this kind of way, certainly it is the case that any person can be made into a leader. The son, the brother who believes that no, a leader must be born in order to be a leader, he is struggling to find his example. Worse than that, as the day approaches for the great reveal, he understands, he, the word has leaked that his brother has found this fabulous example to support his argument. And at the last moment before they are going into the, uh, the great reveal, dawns on the brother something. So he gets him a sack, and he comes to the great reveal. He asks the brother with the cat to go first, and so he puts the cat through all of this routine of waiting on tables and serving, and the crowd oohs and ahs and, and, and thinks, what can the other brother do to beat this? Well, he's got this sack, you know. And he opens up the sack, and in that sack's mice, 
and the mice run everywhere and what does the cat do? The cat runs after the mice. That's exactly what the cat does. Say, what does that got to do with this? Listen, you can clean us up. You can dress us up. You can sit us in a pew every Sunday. But if we've not been changed, if we've not been born again, the magnitude of this moment has not happened in our lives when faced with mice, when faced with temptation, when faced with our sin, we're going to run to that every single time. We must be born again. It's the magnitude of this decision, the magnitude of this moment, the magnitude of this expression, be born again. But there's a second thing, and that is, the phrase born again speaks to the miracle, the miracle of becoming a Christian. Every physical birth is a miracle. I, I remember when uh, I have a son who's 24, I got another son who's 11, that's another miracle, but uh, son 24, 24 miracle. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I, I am in the... Uh, uh, the generation of folks where the dads went into the delivery room. I sort of wish I was of the generation where they waited out in the waiting room, you know, ready to pass out cigars or something. But I, I, was, in the, I was in the delivery room, and, and, uh, and at the last moment before my wife uh, gives birth, there's a, a knock on the door. There's a nursing student supervisor, and, and she's got a brand-new group of nursing students. It's their first day on the rotation of OBGYN, and, and she asks for permission to bring this group of students in. My wife is at that moment in her uh, delivery uh, labor where <clears throat> she is ready to consent to most anything. Just, you know, I want to have this baby. So these, these uh, students uh, come in. So, you know, now it's a pretty full room. Doctors in there, nurses who are already with, with us, me, Lynette, and now this row of probably half a dozen or so nursing students. The moment that my son is born, I glance back over my shoulder, and this group of nursing students, they're bawling their eyes out. I mean, on some of them big crocodile tears, right? Well, I freak out. I don't know what's going on. And I just go to, they're crying, that means something's wrong. And so I, I, I blurt out, what's the matter? What's wrong? What's wrong? And they all look at me like I'm the crazy one, right? Nothing's wrong, you just had a baby. This is great. Why, why are they all crying? And one of them comes and sort of pats me on the shoulder and says, we're sorry, we're sorry. But we've never seen this before. This is a miracle. This is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Some of you get that. The miracle of birth. How much greater is the miracle of spiritual birth? I tell you, a couple of miracles happen. First is that miracle that makes our own salvation miracle possible, and that is the miracle on the cross where we believe, according to the scriptures, that a miracle occurred on the cross. And that miracle is this, that Jesus took upon himself our sin. Not only our sin, but all sin. The sin of all history, the sin of all people, of all time, in one moment, took upon himself so that the scripture says that he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, the one who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, that we might have the righteousness of God. That's a miracle. 
A miracle that Jesus takes my sin and that his death pays the penalty of my sin. You couple that miracle with the miracle of the resurrection three days later so that now because of the cross of Jesus and because of the resurrection of, of Jesus, I can have, John three sixteen. if I believe in that, I can have eternal life. Miracle. And this phrase, being born again, speaks to that miracle. But I want to say a third thing. And that is, if we look closely at this text, the phrase born again speaks to the manner, the manner in which we become Christians. Did you notice it? Embedded in this New Testament story in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, is an Old Testament story. If you're taking notes, and some of you are, you might want to jot down Numbers 21. You can read about what Jesus is referring to in verses 14 and 15 in Numbers chapter 21. It's an Old Testament story of Israel wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And during this time of their wandering, God provides for them everything they need. God provides for them water. God provides for them manna, food, out of the sky every, every day. And uh, it's God's provision for Israel as they wander around because of their disobedience. Well, they start complaining even though God's giving them all of this. In fact, one translation says, we're tired of this wretched food. <laughs> you can hear their disgust in that word, right? And so God sends them a plague of snakes, according to Numbers 21. Well, then they really started complaining. God, uh, Moses intercedes on their behalf, cries out to God, and God says, I, I tell you, uh, you, you put an image of a snake on a pole, and, and everyone who looks at that image of the snake who's been bitten by a snake will be healed, will be instantly healed. Now you take that story that Jesus is referring to, coupled with the idea of the cross, coupled with the idea of this idea of being born again, and you get a picture, a very good picture, of the manner in which we are saved. By that, I mean how we are saved. I see a good number of you taking notes this morning, and that, that fires a preacher up, by the way, so you do that, okay? And so if you're taking notes today, I want you to get ready. I want you to get your pen in, 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 in hand. I want you to get ready to write something down that's very, very important to this message today. I want to give you a description here of what you, your, what my involvement is in this process of being saved. Okay, you ready? Pen in hand, ready to write. Here's what our part, here's what our part is in this process of being saved. You ready? Here it is. Nothing. It's all Jesus. Just as they looked up at that pole, just as Jesus died on the cross, that's what our part is. That's what our part is. He does it all. We believe. I've, I've, I've read it, <clears throat> heard it described like this. You take a group of swimmers, 
you put them on the coast of California and they're going to swim to the coast of Hawaii. Nobody makes it. Oh, some may make it farther than others, but nobody makes it. They all drown. And some of us might clean up a little bit better on our own. Some of us might be able to find out how to be a little bit more religious on our own. But none of us make it to heaven without what Jesus has done for us. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus and says to you and me, you must be born again. Must be born again. Then I want to say something else. And for lots of you, This is the most important thing you'll hear today. Expressing this idea, this phrase, to be born again. The reason it's such a good phrase is that it speaks to the maturity expected once we become Christians. This phrase, being born again, speaks to the maturity that is expected once we become Christians. So here's what this looks like. No one of us expects a baby to be able to do things for himself, herself. It is expected that someone bathes the baby, changes the baby, feeds the baby, teaches the baby to talk, teaches the baby to walk. Everybody gets that. Every, every, everybody understands that. Nobody says to the baby, just, just go feed yourself. But we also expect for that baby one day to get to the point when he or she grows up where they are feeding themselves, bathing themselves, taking care of themselves. We don't expect to send the kid to tech, but we got to go feed him every night, right? And this phrase, being born again, though Jesus uses it, we could say almost in passing, embedded in that phrase is the expectation that we grow up. And I suspect hearing me today in this room today or by some other means today watching us, I I suspect that there's some who need to grow up. To use the language of the New Testament to, to stop needing the elementary things of this world. To use the language of the New Testament to to stop needing and only being able to take in the milk of the Word of God but ready to move up and be able to partake of the meat of the word of God. To come to the place in life where you lay aside, put aside, remove from your life the things that ought not be there anymore in a believer's life and take up things that ought to be part of a believer's life. But the reverse is true for you today, that you're still hanging on to some of those things that were your pre-Christian life and you've never moved up to those things in life that are now ought to be a part of your life listen to what John said in his letter called first John if you know that he is righteous you know this as well everyone who who does what is right has been born of him everyone who has been born of God does not sin hello 
Because his seed remains in him, he's not able to sin because he has been born of God. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born and knows God. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not sin, does not continue in these patterns of sin is the language of the New Testament. But the one who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him the word of the day for many of us who are here today is it's time to grow up it's time to mature it's time to put aside some of those things of the past and then lastly this phrase born again speaks to the moment that we become christians there was a moment September 9th 932 in the evening for me November 18th 1236 in the afternoon for my oldest son you've got a physical moment day of your physical biological birth embedded in this phrase born again is the same truth for you spiritually. There is a moment. You cannot say, well, I've always been a Christian. It may be true that you've always been part of a Christian family. It may be true that you've always been part of a Christian heritage, but it cannot be true that you've always been a Christian. There's got to be a moment when you stepped across the line, when, 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 you, when you said, I, I am leaving the former things of life. I am repenting of my sin, and I am trusting Jesus. There, there's got to be a moment in time where you cross the line and say, I was an unbeliever on this side of the line, but I am a believer now moving forward. I, I trust the claims of Jesus that he died and he rose again the third day. I trust the claim that he died, and when he died, he died for my sin there's a moment in time where you believe that and this phrase being born again speaks to that moment Nicodemus had that moment he did wasn't here Nicodemus is mentioned two other times in the gospel of John he's mentioned in chapter 7 there's a debate going on about Jesus and John 7 tells us that Nicodemus spoke up on behalf of Jesus, even to the point where some of the other Pharisees looked at him and said, are you from Galilee too? Meaning, you're not certain to believe in this God named Jesus, are you? And then the third place that he has mentioned is John chapter 19. Jesus has died. Joseph of Arimathea has asked for Jesus' body. He's going to bury him. And John chapter 19, about verse 40, tells us that Nicodemus, in parenthesis, the one who came to Jesus at night, brought some spices and helped Joseph bury Jesus. I don't know when that moment was for Nicodemus. The gospel doesn't tell us, but there was a moment but Nicodemus stepped across that line. And I'm just wondering, 11.49 a.m. on March the 27th, <laughs> is that right? If somebody might say, this is my moment. I remember Liz saying that 
Liz was a lady that came to our church and I was pastoring in New Iberia. I, I'd use this phrase, defining moment, routinely. It was on Easter Sunday, probably 2004. I still remember oratory much like this, where she was sitting. And she came, I knew her well. She was every Sunday comer. I knew she had never made a profession of her faith, been baptized. She was religious, but I knew she had never made a decision. She simply took me by the hand and she said, this is my defining moment. I wonder if somebody would be willing to do that today. You didn't get up this morning thinking today was going to be a defining moment. You didn't walk in this building an hour ago thinking this would be my defining moment. But a miracle is occurring in your heart today and right now you're ready to say, this is my defining moment. Pastors are going to be here. You can use that language. You can use any language as far as that goes. The words you use are not important. It's what's in the heart. You say, well, do I have to come forward publicly? You know, we don't have to do that. In fact, the pastor is going to give you an invitation to sign a card. But I'm going to tell you something. A couple of things are going to happen if you would come forward. First of all, it would bring great encouragement to every believer every church member who's here today bring great encouragement to them second thing it would do is it bring great accountability into your life you've stepped across that line not just stepped across that line internally but you made it known publicly I'll tell you something else for those of you who are believers today step forward and tell the pastor today I need to do something to have greater maturity in my life would cause you this morning in the midst of great conviction to make that a more accountable plan in your life and I'm going to ask you to do that today to get up even in the balcony make your way forward here today and let this be a defining moment for you today. This is the day. Did you bow your heads across this place today? Anybody here? We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And I just want to prompt you. Anybody here? This is my moment. Be born again. I've got a birthday. And now I'm going to have a spiritual birthday. Maybe even some of you are already believers to say, I, I, I gotta have a, I've got to have a day of reckoning in my life to say this is the moment where I'm giving up that sin because it's keeping me from maturity. And this will be the day I turn my back and I repent. Maybe you need to come forward to make that concrete and absolute and accountable in your life. I'm going to pray for you. Now we're going to stand and we're going to sing and by God's grace, we're going to respond. Oh, God, thank you for these people. They've come today with expectation to hear a word from you. And so I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the gospel of John. I'm thankful for the recording of this encounter that happened between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees. I'm thankful for this phrase 
be born again because it helps us to understand what a relationship to you ought to look like. So now in these moments, God, in obedience, let your people respond according to the way that you're calling them. In Jesus' name, amen. As I say amen, let's all stand together. Justin's going to lead us. Let's worship and sing.